The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Welcome everybody. It's nice to see a lot of people here on a Sunday morning. Um, what I want to talk about today is I know like one of the main questions you get when you actually start teaching meditation is uh, and a main difficulty people actually have is, you know, I, I can't keep my thoughts still. I continue to think while I meditate. And always when you give people advice in this, it's like, well, that's, that's okay. It's not really, um, essentially, that's not the goal of meditation. You can do meditation without your thoughts stopping in some way. But while I give that advice to a lot of people, but that doesn't negate the fact that these states actually are available, that you can access these states of stillness uh, where the thoughts and seemingly perceptions actually seem to cease in some way. So that's what I'm going to talk about today is these states of mind where we reach this level of stillness where there is cessation of thoughts and maybe maybe even cessation of perceptions uh, or particular kinds of perceptions these states that we might call states of contentless experience now these these states are actually like they're really they're actually really really interesting they're generating a lot of interest lately uh, and the reason they're generating a lot of interest is like, well, how can these states actually be possible? How can you have a state that's contentless? How can you have a state where no concepts arise? How can you have a state that has no thoughts or perceptions in it? If, if there's a state where no perceptions are there, how, do you, how are you actually perceiving that state? If it's contentless, how do you know that something's actually happening? Is this a state of something like absolute cessation? How could you even remember something like that if you weren't even perceiving it? So I'm going to do my best today to, to actually to talk about this topic. And essentially, I'm going to be going over a, a, few, a few main questions. And the main the main sort of questions I will be going over is exactly what these states are, how we actually describe them, these states of stillness, these states of uh, contentless experience, these states of silence. What's it like to be in these states? So what are the actual, what, are the, what is the quality of the mind in those states? How do you actually get to those states? What's the path of getting to those states? And what are some of the main difficulties and what are some of the main obstacles to actually achieving some of these states? Now, if, I, if I'm going to wade into these waters, I need to uh, make some, uh, I need to throw some caveats out there right at the start. Um, what I'm going to be, how I'm going to be describing some of these states today, I'm actually going to be doing it from the conceptualization of the way that the Thai forest tradition actually understands these these kinds of states. Now, and the reason I'm doing this is because this is the, the tradition that I'm most familiar with. Um, and one thing uh, I think we have to remember when we're thinking about something like the Thai forest tradition, you know, I'm ordained in the Thai forest tradition. I'm a Westerner. I'm not, you know, I'm not Thai. One of the things we have to remember is that with the Thai forest tradition, there's a, there's a, 
truly, what you could say, like a truly Thai conceptualization of the Thai forest tradition, where that does rely a lot on these, what we call the Kubarajans, these like, great masters in this tradition. Uh, and they have a particular kind of way of explaining some of these things. But then there's the Western version of the Thai forest tradition. And I think this is what most of us are quite familiar with. You know, we have a lot of translated books and all these kinds of things. I'm going to be leaning, and we also have a lot of monks, and uh, monks are giving explanations of these things. I'm going to be leaning more towards the Thai conceptualization of these things. Um, so it might be a little bit different to what you're used to hearing. Um, the other caveat to this is that, that, I, that I need to talk about is that I'm, I'm going to also try to be as, as balanced and as ecumenical as I can possibly be. While I'm going to lean a lot on the Thai forest interpretation of this, I am going to be drawing on things like the, uh, the Pali Canon. I'm going to be drawing on things like the commentary. I'm also going to be drawing on Nagajura's writings about these, these different kinds of states. So it's, it's, you're going to have to strap in. It's going to be a bit dense today, um, but you, you know, that's, uh, sometimes, sometimes dense is fun. And let's, let's actually see if we're talking about something that is really, really fun, like these, these states of stillness, hopefully it can be sort of informative in some, in some way. So with that, well, what are these what are these states of stillness? What are these states of uh, contentless experiences? What, is these, what are these states of absolute silence within the mind? And again, if we think about the Thai forest tradition, as I said, remember that the Thai version of the Thai forest tradition, what the Thai forest tradition really tries to do, it does, does try to lean on some of the earlier Buddhist writings, but it, it does take a lot of its interpretations of these different kinds of states from maybe the later commentaries, things like the Vasudhimaga, but it also really relies quite heavily on a lot of the Thai commentaries on these states, things like the Pubasika. But the main thing that the Thai forest tradition really relies on with this is the teachers in the lineage, the kind of oral transmission from the teachers and the teachers' explanations what we call the Kubarajans, and these are the these are the kind of the big names. The, uh, there's there's Ajahn Mun, who is seen as the grandfather of this tradition. There's people like uh, Ajahn Sao, Ajahn Ajahn uh, Ajahn Kao, Ajahn Lumpur Wan, Lumpur Li, Tanpo Li, who's uh, quite well known in the West. Also, people like uh, monks like Ajahn Mahabua, and you know a lot of you are quite familiar with Ajahn Chah. So. It's really based a lot on their explanations of what these kinds of states are actually like. And so when we think of the Thai forest tradition, there's three big terms that we actually need to keep in mind when we're thinking about anything with the Thai forest tradition. Those three big terms are the kilesas, which are the kind of mental defilements, the things that cover the mind over, the obscure, like uh, the obstructions to a pure mind. One big thing in the Thai forest tradition is what we call the jit, or the chitta in Pali. The jit in Thai means like a heart, but it also means the mind as well. So these two things are they're very, very interconnected. The heart and mind, it's the same kind of thing. Now the heart and the mind, this jit in Thai, it can actually mean 
a mind that's covered over with the chelasis. So you can have these, you know, thoughts going all over the place, uh, bothering the mind. But jit or the chitta can actually, what we talk about a lot in the Thai forest tradition, it's this, it's this state of the mind that is this pure knowing, this knowing awareness. A lot of times what they talk about in Thai is the, the puru, the one who knows. And so when we talk about the jitta in Thai, it's a lot of times talking about this kind of pure awareness. And the last thing in Thai, what we talk about a lot in these, to get towards these states is we just, generally we just talk about samadhi. Samadhi as this very blanket and very, very broad term. Um, and we talk a lot about just the development of samadhi. Now, the, again, the Thai conceptualization of these things, when we look at the Western Thai conceptualizations, they do lean into a lot of the things of the, the jhanas and all these, all these kinds of uh, things. But the Thai tradition as such, it, well, it does uh, mention it a little bit. People like Tanpoli, he would talk about the jhanas a little bit. Generally, they don't really talk about the jhanas, the Thai forest tradition, don't talk about the jhanas that much. Instead, what they talk about more is just, as I said, just the development of samadhi and having samadhi in three different levels. The first level is what we call kanika samadhi, and this is described as very momentary, just brief concentration, brief samadhi. Then you have what's called upajara samadhi, which is this more, it's a little bit more sustained, but it's, it's essentially it's translated as, as like access concentration or neighborhood concentration. And this is like samadhi that's a little bit longer. But then what you have is something called apana samadhi. So the third level. And this apana samadhi is, is described as being this state of, of absorption. Now, the way samadhi works in the Thai forest tradition, we again, we just talk about just developing samadhi and trying to move through these different states. And if one can actually get to this state of apana samadhi, this state of absorption, this is where, if we remember the chitta, if it's covered over with defilements, this actually, it starts to um, gather together. The, the mind, the chitta starts to gather together and it becomes very pure and radiant in this state of apana samadhi. And this is where the, the knowing chitta arises, this state of pure unadulterated knowing awareness actually arises. And so, so essentially, essentially we have these, we have the, this is when you get into this state of apana samadhi, this was potentially where these states of stillness, these states of no thoughts or no perceptions arising could be coming about. And I'll get to why they could be coming about in that state. Now, as I, as I mentioned as well, um, the Thai forest tradition really does rely on a, the commentary, a lot of the commentary material. So how do we actually tie what the tie what the Thai yeah, tie tie what the Thai things are saying to things like the commentary? And if you look at something like the Visuddhimagga, the Visuddhimagga does talk about these these three different levels of samadhi: kanika, upajara, and apana samadhi. But uh, one thing the Thai forest tradition has done, we've, we've missed one of the steps in the Vasudhi market. There's actually another step, which is sort of, ah, don't need it. It's fine. Don't, don't have to worry about it. But the, so in the Vasudhi market, you have, you have Kanika Samadhi, which is again, very momentary, just very, very brief. 
Then you have uh, Parikara Samadhi, Parikama Samadhi, sorry, whereas this is more sustained on an object for a period of time. Then you have uh, uh, Upajara Samadhi, and in the, um, in the Vasudhimago, it talks about Upajara Samadhi here. This is where the five hindrances start to become uh, 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 dispelled to some way, and you start to access the jhanas. So the Vasudhimago describes these states more along the lines of the jhanas. And so this is, what, this is essentially why they call it access, because you're starting to access the jhanas in these states. And when you get to Apana Samadhi in the Vasudhimaga's conceptualization, this is where the four, fact, the four jhanas become a lot more stabilized. So this is, you could start to see how, okay, maybe the Thai version has sort of taken something from the Vasudhimaga that may be tying back to the jhanas. But again, the Thai forest tradition doesn't talk too much about the, the jhanas so much. So if we're continuing to think about what these states of stillness are, these states of contentless awareness actually are, well, what does the Pali canon say about these things? And here, here, is, here is where I'm going to take the caveat of, of saying, is like, look, when you talk about what is pretty prominent in the, uh, the Pali canon is the development of the jhanas. This is, you know, this is sama samadhi. Um, there's a lot of people that have a lot of different interpretations of the jhanas. You have the you have different schools, different traditions talking about it. This person says they're like this. Another person says they're like that. Uh, there's you know there's, there's these things at the moment going on called the jhana wars. I, I, don't, I don't know how I don't know how severe they are, but essentially for myself, I'm not really interested in that. I'm more interested in trying to understand these states of stillness or these states of contentless awareness and maybe how these are conceptualized in the Pali canon. So all I've, when I'm talking about the jhanas here, all I'm talking about is maybe the way that I've understood them from the, uh, from the way that they're actually being portrayed in the, in the suttas. And so what these states of stillness or, or the stillness of thoughts could be in the jhanas. You know, some people argue that the jhanas are full absorption. Some people argue that it's, you can still investigate in it. Again, I'm not trying to get into those kinds of debates, but what it could be in terms of the jhanas is something along the lines of when you access the second jhana. Now, in the second jhana, what you... Uh, what you abandon in that state is something we call vitaka and vichara, which is applied and sustained thought. And you're left with piti, which is the rapture of the mind. Uh, you're left with sukha, which is a, a non-sensory non pleasure of the body. Uh, and you also have, you have ekakata as well, which is, a, which is a unification of the mind. And uh, the other, other quality that this that the jhana actually has, the second jhana has is, uh, what is it, uh, what's it called? Sampasandana, which is like stillness, which is tranquility. So we could maybe say that the second jhana, this is where you're actually getting these states of uh, stillness of thoughts. Um, again, I don't want to get into exactly who said what and, and uh, who has different interpretations. This is just the way that I read it. I'm, again, I'm not really that interested in sort of saying, saying uh, different things about it. But one thing we maybe could be a little bit more so there could be debate about this of like, well, what is the second jhana? Is it actually 
are, are, are thoughts and perceptions ceasing in that? There could be debates around that. That's that's fine. That's all well and good. But one thing that we could probably be a little bit more sure of is when you look in the Pali Canon about the Arupa jhanas, which are the more with uh, what we call the formless jhanas. And in these kinds of jhanas, definitely thoughts and perceptions would be ceasing, and these would be truly contentless experiences. And in these, uh, in the Arupa jhanas, you have the what would where this would definitely be happening is something like the seventh Arupa jhana, which is the, which is the jhana of infinite nothingness, which is so cool to actually think of if you could actually get this thing, and the and the eighth jhana of neither perception or non-perception, and this is, though, so the thoughts and perceptions would be stilled in those kinds of states, but again, this raises the raises the concern if there's no if there's no you're neither having perception or non-perception. What does that actually mean? How can you perceive? Is how can you perceive something that's not there? How could you remember something that's not there? So, and with that, you know, I, I don't really I don't really know. But it is very very cool to sort of think about these things. What this ties well to as well, and another conceptualization of what these states of stillness and and could actually be is by. Uh, a, a writer um, called Nagajura, and anybody that isn't familiar with Nagajura, go and go and read it. It's like, Nagajura is fantastic, is phenomenal, really, really, a really deep and detailed analysis. Um, not only in the states of meditation, but also, but also uh, 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 interpretation of of the of the original Pali as well. Um, and so Nagajura was uh, one of the, you could say, one of the leaders of the uh, Madhyamika tradition, who was the inceptor of the Madhyamika tradition. And when he talks about states of stillness of thoughts, it's sort of like the Thai interpretation where you have those three levels, Kanika, Upajara, uh, Upajara and Apana Samadhi. But he, he extends that a little bit to sort of maybe even build on top of, of, on top of uh, Apana Samadhi. Where he starts to talk about, he talks about the uh, the three doors to liberation, and what's the word here? The the uh, vimoka samuka, the three doors to liberation, and these are different states of samadhi that you could be getting these kinds of absolute stillness of thoughts and perceptions. And the first the first stage that he talks about is what he calls uh, anim anim animata samadhi which is signless samadhi. And essentially what this means in Nagarjura's conceptualization is that one realizes that all dhammas have no object in them. There is no, no object that is present there in that state of samadhi. The second, the second one is uh, apranita samadhi, which is it's aimless samadhi and what this essentially means is that there's there's nothing in the four there's nothing there in in front of one what this what he how he conceptualizes this state of samadhi is that there's no becoming there's no being there's no bawa there's no bawa in terms of the the uh, three poisons of greed hatred and delusion and the last state of samadhi that he talks about is uh sunyata samadhi which is such a cool interpretation of what this is 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 the uh, emptiness samadhi and what he describes emptiness samadhi as is one realizes that all dhammas and 
all objects and absolutely everything is empty and that everything within the five khandas is empty of some kind of self-nature. And this is a state of samadhi that he talks about. So there's these all these different conceptualizations of what we could be talking about when we're talking about a this absolute stillness of thoughts and perceptions, these contentless experiences in meditation. Um, so, I, I, you know, I, as I said, this stuff's dense. You don't have to. You don't have to remember all this. I just, I just find this stuff like quite interesting. So, um, yeah, it's you know, take it or leave it kind of thing. So, essentially, what we would, you know, what. A, you know, okay, here's all these lists and all these kinds of things. It's like, yeah, okay, you're starting to bore me. Like, you're really starting to bore me now. But what's it like to be in these states? Now, again, I have to make another massive caveat here. Again, I am leaning very heavily on the Thai forest interpretation. I'm going to lean on the suttas. I'm going to lean on the Pali Canon. I'm not making some kind of claim that I have these things. Again, I'm leaning. I'm leaning on these different traditions, and that's why I, that's why I have some notes. So, essentially, what what are these states like for the Thai forest traditions? So, if you look at some of these great teachers and the way that they talk about them, they talk about this state of apana samadhi as being a, a point where all perceptions of the body and all perceptions within the mind start to drop away. They're not there anymore. When these all perceptions and formations drop away in the mind, you're, you're left with this state of pure knowing awareness. Again, the pure chitta. This is a state where things are just in, innately radiant and innately pure and they're solitary and there's nothing that obstructs, obstructs them in these states. Within this state of the pure chitta, there's, there's no content within that. It's just awareness itself. It's just the knowing itself. There's no, there's no objects within this state. There's no, there's no subject within this state. There's no duality within this state. There's no subject or no object. There is just the state of awareness, the pure chitta itself as it is. It's all pervasive. And it's not to say that in that state that, that uh, perception and consciousness doesn't exist, but what it what it's uh, what it's uh, what I think it's implying is that that consciousness is all pervasive at that time. There is nothing but pure consciousness at that time. So this is when to to arrive at this state, one has to, as I said, to get through the the defilements and the way that some of these teachers describe it is of this pure chitta, this one who knows, this this pure rule, this knowing, is that this this is a state that is always and ever present, that it's timeless, that it's it it, it can somebody like Ajahn Mahabhur says this is a this is a state of the mind, the pure chitta, it can never be born and it never dies. It is this pure underlying state of what we are. And if you think about this conceptualization, this is, this is really cool because actually what it ties to is, is a lot of the, you could say, the, like the Zen uh, interpretations of this or the Mahayana interpretations of something like Buddha nature, that we have it within us already, but we just can't 
access it or we don't know how to access it. And, and these Thai forest masters saying that something like developing samadhi will allow us to actually access these things. So it's, 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 it's really cool. And it's, it's this state where, as I said, that all perceptions of the body uh, an all, all, all knowing of the body actually everything just drops away and you're just left with this this uh, knowing that's there um, but what again okay so that's that's the Thai forest interpretation of this thing well what do maybe something like the Pali Canon talk about this and as if you remember I talked about maybe maybe this could be analogous to something like that's happening maybe in the second jhana and if we remember what the second jhana is, what that is is, sim is simply this pity, this, uh, this rapture of the mind that is pervasive. There's the, uh, 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 there's the sukha, there's this, uh, there's this uh, happiness of non-sensual pleasure of the body. There is sampada, which is this tranquility, this stillness of the, the mind, and, and ekakata, which is this unification of the mind. So... If you think about what the second jhana is, maybe that could give you an interpretation of what these states actually might be like. Now, this is all, you know, this, you know, obviously this sounds great, you know, to get to the, the essential knowing nature of the mind and the, the pure, the mind in its pure natural state or get into the second jhana or something. It's like, this is, this is awesome. Like how, how do I, how do I actually get that thing then? And so, the, the next question is, well, what's the path? How do you actually do that? How do you get to that? And so while I've been, I've like just bombarded you with technicalities this morning so, so far, this is actually where the Thai forest tradition is really, really good because it's, it's really, really simple. They, again, they don't think in many of these terms of, of, of different levels of jhana and all these kinds of thing. It's very simple. They just... All they think about focusing on is getting to these states. Just is is a, it's a simple process of of samati jalan panya and panya jalan samati, which means which means samadhi develops panya and panya develops samadhi, or concentration develops wisdom and wisdom develops concentration. So it's just this very symbiotic nature between these two kinds of practices that we need to keep doing. And, well, how do we actually develop samadhi in terms of the Thai forest tradition? Again, the Thai Thai forest tradition. Really, really simply, actually, there's, it's, it's probably the most simple meditation technique that's available there. All they talk about doing most of the time is just developing a simple mantra, butto. Just doing butto over and over and over and over again. So when we sit meditation, we just internally recite butto, butto, butto. Whenever we walk meditation, uh, we do butto, like one step, butto, 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 butto. Whenever you walk, whenever you're moving around, whenever you're grabbing something, it's butto, butto. It's just continually over and over again. Um, a lot of the Thai forest tradition talks about also developing anapanasati, developing mindfulness of breathing as well. But they really do tie it to using this mantra as well, butto. As you're breathing in, you think but out to, butto, or you could just go butto, 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 butto. So the development of samadhi in the Thai forest tradition is just it's just do this one thing. Now I when I 
when I started like going to see a lot of, and I've, I've actually met a lot of these really, really great teachers and it's, it's a little bit infuriating as a Westerner going to these places because you go, can you give me some advice on some meditation? And they're like, just do butto. It's like, okay, I'll go off and I'll do that and I'll, I'll go and do butto, 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 butto and then I'll think about ice cream and all these kinds of things and come back a few weeks later, I'm like, Dan, what do I do next? And they're like, like, can you do butto all the time? No, no, not at all. I just keep doing that then. Just, just keep doing it, just keep doing it. Okay, go back again. What's the next step? Have you done the butto yet? Nope. Keep doing it. So it's pretty simple. It's just do the one thing over and over and over and over again. Um, and so we have this way to develop samadhi, uh, just doing this one simple thing over and over again. But this is balanced by developing wisdom as well, developing panya as well. And what the Thai forest tradition talks about quite a lot is you might think, oh, developing wisdom, developing insight into the nature of self or the nature of mind and all these kinds of things. The Thai forest tradition doesn't really lean into that much at all. What they talk about when developing wisdom is developing wisdom within the sphere of the body, just contemplating the body. That's all you, again, again, really simple. That's all you need to do. Contemplate the body. Develop samadhi, contemplate the body. Develop samadhi, contemplate the body. That's all you have to do. We talk about this in terms of developing what we call a subakamatana, which is the the uh, you know the the unbeautiful nature of the body. So thinking about the hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, skin, the internal organs, all these kinds of things. We talk about developing maranānusati, which is the uh, the recollection of death and how the body will go through through periods of decay, or recollecting recollecting that the body is just made up of essential elements. So the Thai forest tradition, it really is just this balance of developing something like butto and then maybe developing wisdom towards uh, investigating, investigating the body in this way. So when one actually, when one actually does this, and ha so how do we actually develop butto and how do, how do we develop butto and how do we develop the, the wisdom with these kind of bodily practices? How does that actually start to work? Well, the way it's described is that the again, if we remember the chitta, the chitta, it's the the way they conceptualize it. It's always flowing out, and it's always covered over with things, and it's always moving out into the world. And so, what we're trying to do by just developing butto is to gather it in together and make it converge and not let it go out so much. So the more we develop butto, the more it actually starts to converge within. The more that we can stay with butto and the more it starts to converge, it will start to move into these periods of kanika samadhi where it maybe just stops just for a moment. Butto, 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 and everything sort of drops away, but just for a moment. But then you have to go, starts, mind starts to move again. You have to go back, butto, 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 butto. Uh, and eventually you'll start to move into, you can keep the mind still for longer. And what happens when the mind converges more and more on something like butto or even the breath, eventually you're going to get to the point where this drops away. Butto drops away or the breath drops away and it all disappears. And it's at these states where the pure chitta starts to arise. But essentially, you know, again, uh, if you remember what I said, when the, the kinds of instructions you get, even if you got up to something like this, you go back to the teacher and go, well, what do I do next? It's like, 
keep like keep doing that just keep doing it more you haven't really reached the the proper point yet because samadhi at something like an upajara kanika or an upajara stage they're still seen as very unstable it can come and it can go a lot so you're encouraged just to keep practicing with bhutto until you can get to the point where you reach something like apana samadhi where you're practicing with bhutto you're practicing with the breath and eventually things really do start to drop away and you drop into this absorption state and it's at that state again this is where the the pure citta emerges um, and when you're in this kind of state the meditation takes a life of its own there's no real controlling it anymore buttholes dropped away or the breaths dropped away and if you remember i said all perceptions of the body or perceptions within the mind or thoughts within everything all that just drops away and all there is left is this knowing awareness of the chitta and so what do they recommend that you do at that point or if you can get to that point it's it's, it's awesome and it's great uh, but then one turns one's attention towards the chitta and just rests as the chitta turns their awareness to awareness itself and just rests and remains there and can rest and remain in this state. And so essentially this is what we have to continue to try to do until our samadhi becomes very very stable and you can actually stay in these states of samadhi all throughout the day. All throughout the day and even when you go to sleep you can remain in these states of samadhi. These things are seen as as possible. So <coughs> This is again. This is the Thai forest interpretation. But if you remember, there's a there's the Western Thai forest interpretation as well. For many many monastics and uh, communities that we know and love, they have they do lean a little bit more, maybe on on the suttas and things like that. So what do the suttas say, and the Pali Canon? What does that say about how we develop these states? Well, this is where we start to move into think. We can start to look at things like the Anapanasati Sutta where the Buddha actually talks about the development of Anapanasati and how you develop Anapanasati. The Buddha talks about uh, 16 kind of steps that you can go through, or he calls them the four treatads, I think they are, where essentially you practice mindfulness of breathing. And these these different steps are something along the lines of, you know, uh, 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 a meditator, uh, when he breathes in long, he knows he breathes out long. When he breathes out long, knows he breathes out long. Breathes in short, knows it. Breathes out short, knows it. Breathes in, uh, uh, recognizing the, the bodily perceptions. Breathes out, calming the bodily fabrications, I actually think it is. Moving into things like, uh, then it can sort of get to steps where it says, and I think maybe this might be a step where you could say it's maybe the stillness and the contentlessness in the in the in the seventh and eighth step of the Anapanasati Sutta, uh, where the Buddha talks about uh, breathing in, I still mental formation. Uh, breathing in, I experience mental formations. Breathing out, uh, I still. Uh, sorry, breathing in, I experience mental formations. And the next step is uh, breathing in, breathing out, I calm mental formations and what mental formations are are citta sankara and again if you remember the thai interpretation citta is this big thing that citta is the mind citta is the heart sankara is some kind of formation on top of that so we could see that you know the buddha when he's talking about anapanasati going through these different steps of the anapanasati is the way that we develop these uh states of stillness also the 
once one moves through the Anapanasati stages of Anapanasati, you know, what you're doing in that point as well is you're uh, abandoning the five hindrances in the mind. And this is, you could say, one of the main obstructions to your meditation. And the five hindrances, just for anybody that doesn't know, the first hindrance is sensual desire or karma chanta. Uh, the second one is, what is it, uh, ill will. Uh, the third is uh, lethargy and dullness. Third is restlessness, is it? Third is restlessness. Yeah, so restlessness and worry, which is, uh, what is it? Yeah, yeah, and the the last is doubt. So, but the fourth one then is sloth and sloth and torpor. Sloth and torpor is not a good word. It's more yeah, lethargy and dullness. Yeah, tinamita. Yeah, lethargy and dullness. So there, we have to try to what we're trying to do in as through the development of something like anapanasati is to uh, to let go of the five hindrances in the mind. It's not entirely sure how the five hindrances are, are attached to something like the jhana, but this is if you do look in the Visuddhimagga, the Visuddhimagga actually starts to 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 join the factors of jhana into the abandonment of the of the five hindrances, and so in the Visuddhimagga it talks about talks about uh, if we remember uh, vitaka, which is applied thought. This counteracts uh, lethargy and dullness, uh, and vichara, which is sustained thought. This this uh, counteracts doubt and uncertainty. Um, Piti, which is the rapture, it counteracts ill will, and it says it says in the Visuddhimagga that sukha, sukha, the non-sensual pleasure, counteracts restlessness and worry, and egakata, uh, counter this one-pointedness of mind, counteracts uh, sensory desire. I'm not sure if my notes are wrong here, but it, it I don't know, my, my, my sort of thought, and I don't know, maybe we can talk about this later, but yeah, maybe like sukha, uh, this uh, that you're developing in the jhanas, like you'd think that might sort of counteract something like sensory desire, This uh, so a non-sensual pleasure would counteract the outflowing of wanting for some kind of sensual pleasures, but I don't know, maybe I've, maybe I've wrote the thing down wrong, but anyway. So the... The other path that I sort of wanted to talk about as well, um, other thing of, of leading leading towards this is, again, uh, Nagajura's conceptualizations of these things is like is so is it's so cool, and it's uh, it's for anybody that hasn't looked at it. I again, I, I recommend actually looking actually looking at it. And so when Nagajura talks about these things, he he actually starts to talk about. Uh, what is called, uh, if you remember what I was talking about, it's called the anim- animita samati. Now, I know there's a lot of there's a lot of people that talk about you know develop the jhanas and you develop the nimitta and all these kinds of things, but Nagajira talks about that the first stage of samadhi is this animita samati, and actually also as well if we look look at the the Pali Canon, the Buddha, and I, I'm indebted to a monastic friend that brought this up for me that the Buddha actually talks about animita samati. A lot as well, developing, uh, developing the objectlessness, objectless samadhi. I'll just I'll read a few things here when the Buddha talks about it. Um, uh, the Buddha says, like with with objectless samadhi, it's this is by not focusing on any object, a monk attains objectless concentration. This is called objectless liberation of the mind. Uh, 
amongst its sufficient reason to practice objectless concentration, when objectless concentration is practiced and magnified, is of great fruit and benefit. And he, it sort of seems like the Buddha equates uh, animata samadhi with something like nagajura's sunyata, sunyata or sunyato samadhi, with this with emptiness. Um, so there's a there's a passage where the Buddha talks about monks. What is the path to the unconditioned emptiness concentration, objectless concentration, and under, undirected concentration, monks? This is called the path to the unconditioned. And he talks about practice objectless meditation in order to discard self-identity. One who has broken through self-identity walks in peace. And so you can maybe see that if you develop this objectless concentration, this animata samadhi, this might be a path to seeing through the illusion of self. This might be the path to uh, dispelling all thoughts and perceptions that are in the mind. So we have the ways that we can actually do this. There's the Thai forest way. There's the, there's the way that we find in the suttas and the way that we, you know, the, the Nagajura talks about uh, doing these things. And these are all, you know, this is all really cool. It's like, well, great. This is, you know, for me, when I started meditating, it's like, that's what I want. Like, if I can do that thing, that's, that's what I actually want out of this whole practice. But what are some of the difficulties? What, what are some of the obstacles there for us? Well, the biggest obstacles to actually developing these states of mind is, uh, again, the, the outflowing of the mind that the mind gets caught up in the world. The mind gets, uh, is always going out into wanting objects and things in the world. If you want to develop the objectless concentration, one has to retreat from those things. Essentially, what we get pulled around a lot by is, we, uh, is something called karma raga, which is attachment to things in the world, the forms that are in the world. This is something that continually gets in our way and pulls us out into the world. If we remember the Thai conceptualization of that the mind is always flowing out. And what we're doing when we're trying to develop this kind of samadhi is to converge and bring it back in, bring it back into this state of stillness. So this constant pull of the external world and our desires for things in the world, this is one of the biggest biggest things that we, uh, hindrances or difficulties that we need to overcome in our practice. Essentially, what this is arising from, from the Thai forest conceptualization, is this is arising from the kilesas within the mind, the defilements within the mind, these things that you dilute, dilute, sorry, dilutes the wrong word, is, is to, to obscure this pure awareness, this, the, the, the blemishes on the mind. And these, are, these kilesas are the things that sort of push us out into the world. And so we need, these are one of our main kind of obstacles. And obviously you can think of things like the five hindrances as being an obstacle as well. One of the biggest obstacles as well, though, is actually thinking it's too difficult to do. And when you talk to a lot of people about meditation and you say, oh, just practice butto, just practice the breath, it's like, oh, that's a really difficult thing to do. I can't do that. I just like to like, sit here and just relax and all these kinds of things. So developing these states of samadhi, people think it's really, really difficult to do. But one thing with the Thai forest tradition, um, Thai people in general, very, very relaxed, very cool, very chilled out, uh, very happy kind of people. But when they talk about meditation, it's this real kind of gung-ho, go after it, 
like practice as hard as you can, do this as much as you can, keep doing it and really give up everything for the practice. There's a, and so there, I think there's a different reason why maybe there's the Thai, Thai forest interpretation of the way of practice, but then there's the westernized Thai version. I can get into it later maybe of why there is a difference there. That I, the, essentially there's a difference in personality um, there that you know, maybe Westerners don't gravitate too much towards this kind of like, just keep punching through and just keep doing this one, this one thing. But essentially the point I'm trying to get at is we think that these states aren't available. These are, or these are too hard to get. Or essentially that we just don't put forth enough effort to actually get them. We fall short think it's too hard. Okay, I'm just going to try this more relaxing kind of thing. But again, from the Thai forest perspective, is just keep at it. Keep at it. These things actually are available to you. These states are within the purview of human existence. These are within the purview of human capabilities. These states are something that you can actually achieve. And if you keep practicing in this way, you actually will get to them but you have to continue to practice. You have to give up a lot for the practice. You really have to be serious about the practice and you really have to try to, to do this. So with that, that's probably, that's probably enough of me sort of going on about these, these things. But just, to, just as a recollection, one, uh, the, the closing point I'd like to make here is like, so I've talked a lot about the Thai forest tradition and the, the Thai conceptualization of the Thai forest tradition. And I've also compared that to the Western conceptualization of things that Western is in the Thai forest tradition, maybe emphasized. And then we looked at the things like the Pali Canon and the Suttas and Nagajura. And what people have a tendency to do is go, well, this, you know, here's the differences. Here's, here's the actual differences here, and here's why this other conceptualization is wrong, and here's the, why this other, here's why my conceptualization is right. And what we get if we actually look at across these different traditions and across these different writers and across these different uh, uh, interpretations is we actually find a lot more similarities than we find differences. There's many, many more similarities between the different schools of Buddhism than there are differences between them. So we should take that into account and recognize that, that essentially we just have different labels in Buddhism for describing you know, seemingly very, very similar kinds of states. And this, all this arises is due to different, uh, different, different conceptualizations of language, different uh, periods in history where you conceptualize different states in different ways, different terms that we use to describe seemingly what seem like the same things. So instead of thinking of, well, this conceptualization is right and that conceptualization is wrong, this style is right, that style is wrong, this individual is right, that individual is wrong, try to think of the similarities between these things when, we, when you're actually practicing to them. And again, just to speak to the Thai forest uh, uh, interpretation of these states, it's actually, I've gone through a lot today, but it's actually like pretty, sim pretty simple. Just keep doing the one thing over and over and over again, and hopefully you'll get to these states. So with that, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there for now. Um, anybody has any kinds of uh, uh, rebuttals, concerns, all these kinds of things, your uh, misunderstandings, you're more than welcome to ask, ask any kinds of questions now, clarifications. Um, I'll do my best. I'll do my best to. Anybody that's like, oh, that was that was 
just totally wrong. I'm more than happy to hear, happy to hear your thoughts now. So. God, that was long. <laughs> I think that's the longest one I've ever given. We'll just be alternating one question from the floor and the yep. online audience. Yep. Yeah, hi, that, that was a great talk. Um, you know, you said about um, you have two things. You have the output flow, right? Yep. And which can hinder your um, jhana, yep. achieving jhana. Yep. I'm just wondering, like most of us, you know, we have bills to pay, we've got mortgages, yeah, yeah, yeah. and, you know, we've got to sure. do the outward, yep. we've got jobs or yep. whatever, yep. or businesses or whatever. So can the two live together mm. in oneself, or mm. is, and, and I'm sure this is true for in Thailand as well, mm. you know, where they also have bills to pay and all yeah, that, Yeah, right? yeah, for sure. So is it possible to, for both to live together in oneself? Yeah. So, you know, essentially when, I, when we talk about like outflowing, outflowing things and things that are outside in the world, uh, remember, remember what we're talking about is developing states of meditation. So obviously there's things that you have to do in the world, there's bills you have to pay, you have to go to jobs and all these kinds of things, but the time that you're meditating, that's a different thing. You're sitting down to meditate, so instead of the mind going out into the world, you're trying to bring the mind in closer and closer and closer. So it is possible to actually to you know, operate in the world, do these things in the external world, but also be bringing the mind in at the same time. Obviously, you know when there's problems to think about, uh, there's plans to make. You know you make those plans, but when you're practicing dhamma and you're practicing meditation, you're trying to bring all that in. You're trying to let go some of those things. And again, if you remember from, from what I said, with, say, for example, in the Thai forest tradition, you're internally reciting Bhutto all the time. So even when you're actually engaged in the world and doing things in the world, you can always be reciting Bhutto in your mind. I'm sure you've had the experience where you're talking to someone and it's like, but your mind's like thinking of something else. Most of the time when I'm yeah. talking to people, it's like, oh, I'm thinking of something else entirely. So part of that training is you can still mentally recite Bhutto in the mind while you're talking to people and doing things. Or you could be watching the breath as you're going about your daily activities in the world. Now, obviously, if one, if one goes into a monastic setting or goes off onto retreat, it's, it's a lot easier to do these things and have these periods where you can bring the mind in. But that doesn't mean that you can't operate in the world as a layperson and actually develop these same kinds of states. You don't need to be a monastic to access these things. Again, it's within the purview of human capabilities. So whether one is a monk or whether one is a layperson, it doesn't really matter. What matters is your own development. And that's the thing with these states, with these states of, uh, with these developing these states, you know, many, you know, many lay people can actually get them as well that have jobs, have all these kinds of things. Uh, uh, and so they're there to, for us to actually access. So you can access. So even though you're engaged in the world, you still can be doing these things. But especially when you're meditating, okay, I'm dropping the world 
let the world go, don't worry about it, and I focus more on these things. Does that answer the question? Or? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, cool. uh, I, I think um, if more people <laughs> in this world do that, achieve mm. that kind of um, state, yeah. Yeah, that that would solve a lot of problems in my view. But it, it'd you be know, awesome. It'd, it'd be some awesome. problems as well. Yeah. Yeah, and as you know, and the, a lot of people ask me about this. They they sort of say, well, well, what if everybody did this? Like nobody, we'd get nowhere in society. It'd be useless. It's like you just have these like kind of zombies that are like <laughs> buto 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 buto. This. The, uh, what happens if everybody becomes enlightened? How does society operate? And my my response to this is like. It's not going to happen. Like, don't worry. <laughs> like, it's 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 not easy to get these things. So, it's okay. Not everybody's going to get it. But again, I think as a Dharma practitioner, it's something you should be aiming for. Yeah, something. but I think if it does happen, mm. we solve a lot of problems. We for solve all of our environmental crises for sure. For yeah, sure. Stuff yeah. like that, you know. But <laughs> hopefully, hopefully, at least everybody in this room can do it. That's the let's let's start there. So, yeah. okay. All right. Thank you. Thanks. Yep. Uh, thank you, Ajahn. So a lot of people are wondering about the word Buddha, so I'll combine a couple of questions right, into yep, one. Yep. So just wondering uh, how it's spelt and whether it's Buddha or Buddha and uh, what the meaning yep. of Buddha is. So Buddha, um, uh, so essentially Buddha is a mantra one would use, uh, the silent repetition of this word over and over again in your mind, Buddha. What essentially what Buddha means is uh, the awakened one. Uh, it's just an epithet for the Buddha. Um, so it is a. It's just another word for the Buddha. It can also be uh, translated as an awakened state of mind, an, an awakening of the mind. So it's how it's used a lot um, in the Thai forest tradition. It is a, also a recollection of the Buddha as well. So you can use it as either thinking of the 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 Buddha himself, the uh, awakened quality of the mind, or you can use it to think of the, uh, the 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 different qualities of the Buddha. At its at its root, what you're trying to do with the development of the mantra with it is just to just to uh, 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 reco recollect the word silently within your mind. Um, you can use it to recollect on the qualities of the Buddha. That's fine. There's nothing. There's that. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but it it can also. It, mainly, it's used just to develop this one pointed focus and this one pointed concentration. And how do you spell it? B U D D H O. And there's actually a book by one of the forest masters called uh, Ajahn Tet. Um, is and he goes into quite a lot of detail explaining what Bhutto is uh, and how one develops that uh, in the meditation. Um, yeah, was was there another part of that question that I forgot? Uh, no, I think you covered pretty much. Yeah. Yep. Mante, you described uh, very clearly the yeah. Samatha Bhavana in mm. various interpretations yep. from Thai and other traditions, uh, various stages of Samadhi. Mm. Uh, the Samatha meditation practice is uh, not unique to uh, liber uh, Buddha's uh, ultimate no, uh, no, no, practice yeah. of liberation from yeah. Sansara, mm. uh, but um, it is useful to start sure. and it is practiced by 
Christians, uh, yeah. Muslims, Hindus, yep. and yogis. And uh, it gives a lot of uh, bliss and joy and tranquility. Mm. Um, but uh, if you, uh, to get to that, as mm. you said earlier, you have to suppress your defilements. You have, mm. to, you have to have a place. Yep. place. So a lot of people have places in various levels and yep. intensity. Yep. And uh, most of the people who try to do this, they suppress them. Yeah. Uh, not that they have thinned it, yep. or, mm. or you can only thin it by wisdom. So uh, you don't have to have much wisdom, you suppress it yeah, by yeah. sheer energy yep. or loving God or something like that. Yeah, you yeah. just uh, submit to something. Yep. Yeah, that, uh, then uh, you um, go to the next stage where you said that you don't see objects and uh, uh, do, no duality and mm. uh, only see processes. No, which are so at that stage. Um, also, Buddha says that uh, uh, we don't have these uh, hindrances coming. Mm. That is the stage. From that stage, only you can use that stage to go sideways to mm. develop, develop wisdom, mm. the uh, to see the world mm. from within, uh, mm. uh, to see how the world works, like without. Seeing Anicca uh, Dukkha you see mm. that in everything. Mm. That is the path that mm. leads to liberation yep. from wisdom and eventual uh, yeah. Nibbana. Mm. Uh, the, the, if you go further up in uh, Samatha, mm. you get the more blissful states, yeah. more blissful states, and you see that you are with everything and uh, see God and all that stuff. Mm. And it's, it's a blissful state. Mm. And uh, but when you finish that, yeah. you are back to square one and yeah. you haven't gone anywhere. Yeah. So it's a, it is a very useful practice mm. for those who yeah. have developed wisdom yeah. and gone further in the path of vipassana meditation for and sure. wisdom mm. to come to this stage mm. and to enjoy the bliss of Samantha. Yeah. And yeah. Buddha and Dharahats did that all the time. Mm. Mm. That is their retreat. Mm. They have... It's a great thing for the wise people yeah. who have uh, arahats and uh, mm. Buddha. They enjoyed these uh, uh, states. So that's how they mm. got the rest, not by sleeping, yeah. in this uh, samadhi state. Yeah. So uh, we have to understand. The, uh, Eva Nancha says that mm. you don't have to go f up to the fourth yeah, level. For sure. From yep. halfway yep. Go towards the developing wisdom. Yep. Yep. That is the end game in mm. Buddhist practice. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's a good point that... um. Uh, and I, maybe I didn't make it. Maybe I didn't make it. But you know, essentially, when we when we think about these things, and, and especially in the Thai forest tradition, uh, we we talk a lot about talk a lot about that. You know, it is it's it's not the end goal to develop these states. Uh, it is a, a very very useful tool to get towards the end goal. The end goal actually is to have to develop wisdom, and the the. The refinement of the mind from wisdom is even more refined than than actually developing these states of samadhi. Now, one one thing that I always have really liked about the Thai forest interpretation of well, how much should I develop? Should I develop these? You know, should I develop the apana samadhi? Should I develop? You know, or should I move into developing the arupajanas? Should I develop? Should I develop the the sunyata samadhi? Um, what you'll usually get, the, the answer you'll usually get is just however much you can get, get that. Like just whatever you can get, just do that. Whatever power or whatever strength you get of the mind from developing that kind of samadhi, then use that to develop wisdom. 
Again, it's a symbiotic thing. Use them back and forth. So whatever level of samadhi you got, that's great. That's fine. That's okay. Whatever it is, that's okay. Use that to develop some wisdom. The better your wisdom becomes, it'll support that samadhi more and the samadhi will become deeper and deeper. The deeper the samadhi gets, the more profound and refined that the wisdom will actually become. And so these things support each other. So it's not like you have to get to this kind of state first and then develop wisdom. It's like, no, you develop them in tandem all the way. Um, again, these, these, these kinds of states, what they do is give the mind enough refinement and enough strength and enough power to fully penetrate with discerning wisdom into the nature of the mind and into the uh, and into the nature of the different defilements that are the kilesas that are within the mind but again you don't have to go well i need to you know okay nagajura's conceptualization is awesome an imita samadhi i need to get an imita samadhi before i even like bother doing anything else no just again practice with whatever you've got whatever tools that you've actually got use those tools Whatever strength that you've got to lift something, lift that thing with the strength that you've got. So yeah, that's a that's a good point. So yeah, maybe time for one more question online and one more question in the room. Yep. Uh, thank you, Ajahn. So someone's asking what you said about using Buddha as a mantra. Mm. I noticed too that I can keep doing the mantra, but think about everything but the mantra. Yeah, yeah. So should I just keep doing it? It's it's the it's the trap. It's a it's a it's a, when you when you when when you get like really good at doing butto, it's like I can butto butto. Yeah, what am I? You know, I'm gonna eat for lunch as well. Butto butto. So so the first thing is it's better than not doing it. It's better than not actually having it. So even if even if you're doing something like repeating butto, but you're you know starting to move off into thought. Uh, or say, for example, you're maybe watching the breath, but you're also maybe thinking of something else as well. That's better than not doing it at all. So lean into that a little bit more of trying to do it more and maybe having these these uh, other thoughts and things come up. If you're moving throughout the world and you're watching the breath or you're repeating Bhutto and maybe you're still thinking of other things, that's not so bad at the moment. Don't worry about that. What will happen is, though, the more you practice this and you're sort of swinging in and out between the butto and the, and the thoughts, is that when you actually start to sit, it'll be easier for you to make the butto louder, maybe. And the louder you can make that within your own mind, then the actual thoughts start to, the, 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 those other sort of extraneous thoughts, they start to, uh, they start to drop away. So... While there is that uh, experience you can have of, okay, there's the butto or there's the, I'm watching the breath and the thoughts are still coming up, keep with it, keep at it. And what will end up happening is like the, the scales, the weight, the weighting of the butto or the thoughts will, will start, to, start to move. At times, butto will start to overtake the thoughts more and the thoughts start to drop away. So thoughts start to drop away more and more and more. Butto becomes more profound. And then you can drop into these states of stillness. Other times, the thoughts are going to be more, and the butto's not so. The thoughts are louder, and the butto's not so loud. But that's fine. Just try to just try to keep it going, or try to keep the awareness of the breath going. It's better than not. I get the the the, the take home point here is it's better than not doing it at all. So even if it is seems like it's weak, then that's okay. The more you do it, the stronger it will become. Uh, uh, like everything, like everything, the more you practice this thing, the better and better you'll get at it and the more you'll be able to do it. So, yeah. 
So maybe one other question. We'll call it a day. Yes, thank you, Ajahn. Yeah. Um, continuing on the theme of Bhutto mm. today, what, what do you think it is about that simple recitation of a, of a simple man, mantra that mm. um, induces these kind of states? I mean, in, in other traditions, like, like Zen tradition, mm. um, an answer to certain koans is mu, which is yeah. not, yeah. Um, which, which struck me as kind of... Um, Different, but 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 similar in, yeah. in, in its use. Um, what do you think it is about that recitation that 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 gets one there? Yeah. So there is something about developing single pointedness of mind, and it's it's a very it's a very useful tool to develop that single pointedness of mind because you're just repeating the one thing over and over and over and over. So that whole practice is geared towards single-pointedness of mind. Now, with something like uh, developing developing koans, uh, and also, you know, in a way you're sort of, it's, it's a little bit of a similar kind of process where you're, you know, you're repeating the koan to yourself over and over again. So it might be more spaced out, but you're, in essence, in a way, trying to develop the same thing. Something with the mantra, it's just more, it's just more uh, like a like a machine gun kind of thing. So it's like you're, you're trying to rip a hole in the floor or something. It's like using this is a bad analogy. I don't. I don't. I, what, I'm going to lean into it. I'm, just, I'm, I'm already there. So it's like a jackhammer. Jackhammer is a <laughs> jackhammer is a better one. And so like a jackhammer, you're trying to like smash into this, smash into the floor and break it. It's, it's continually going. Continually going, there's no room for it to move. Whereas maybe something like the koan is, I can't think of another power tool now. That's, <laughs> but you know, maybe it's something that's more like, I don't know, dropping a stick of dynamite on it. This is a bad analogy, I'm, I'm really sorry. <laughs> but essentially, essentially the, the mantra repetition, it's more rapid fire. Whereas the koan is, there's a bit more space. There's a bit more space in it, but it's sort of leading towards the same thing of repeating the same thing over again and arriving at uh, a non-answer or an answer. So I think it's just the reason it's conducive is because you just don't have as much room to move. So with something like the koan, if, if you're already reasonably calm, something like the koan can work quite well because you know, the mind is already stilled to some extent. And so it's easier to repeat the koan and tap into that. Whereas maybe if the mind is a little bit more perturbed, Repeating this mantra is just going to it's going to cut through that like perturbed nature of the mind. So, yeah, does that answer the question? Or yes, thank you. That's very helpful. Cool. Okay, with that, it's it's time for me to eat something. So, <laughs> so uh, I'd like to thank you all for coming. And so we'll just we'll uh, uh, any you've done all the announcements. All, all the announcements are done. There's enough announcements. So with that, we'll pay respect to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, and you're all more than welcome to come over and, and offer Bindabhat, and you can ask me a question after. Oh, you got an announcement. Okay. Yep. I just wanted to say I hope that uh, you read in the newsletter that we're starting the archives project today. So we're looking for um, old photos, you know, back to the... Um, 80s and onwards, and any press releases or flyers. We're just trying to get a sort of history of the BSV together. So if you did see that and you've brought in some photos, please bring them up to the library after the meal 
But if you're not staying for the meal, see myself or Yasmin now. Thank you. Thank you. Perfect. Anybody maybe online that didn't hear that? If you have old BSV uh, uh, memorabilia, uh, cuttings, uh, anything, any kind of information, uh, please uh, get in touch maybe somehow with 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 Yasmin go to to uh, through, you can do it through the BSV website I'm guessing secretary at BSV if you do have any any uh, like uh, BSV memorabilia photos all these kinds of things that, that would be awesome okay so we'll pay respect to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha and we can then we can go over and do the Bindabada.